The interview for today's podcast was actually recorded on July the 3rd and is chock full of information on mental health issues and particularly on how mental health issues could affect preppers in and after an SHTF situation. We touch on how we might need to deal with those issues in our own lives, as well as dealing with those who may not be able to obtain their medications and what society might look like. Stay with us, and we'll unpack mental health issues and prepping when we come back. Practical Prepping Podcast. We're helping everyday people become prepared for whatever emergencies come our way. Where gear is good, but knowledge is better because the more you know, the less you have to carry. We're your hosts, Mark and Krista Lawley. Our guest today is Lonnie Jones. Lonnie is a licensed professional counselor. He's a consultant. He's a podcaster, a teacher, and he is a volunteer police chaplain assigned specifically to a SWAT team. Let's jump right into that interview. Mental health's just gone rampant, has it not? Absolutely. They released a lot of institutionalized people and the police departments and the county sheriff's jail became the largest provider of mental health services in the country. Wow. wow. I've said that I honestly believe, and I'm a lay person. My name is Krista, by the way. I'm Mark's wife. Okay. I honestly believe just in my estimation from having family members that were born with some mental impairment, but knowing other people that became mentally ill, that I think it's the number one plague on humankind on the planet. It, there's there's got to be way more of it than is being diagnosed and way more of it that's being misdiagnosed and a whole lot of it is being diagnosed and treated, but it's just so pervasive. I think there's, there's more of it than we realize. Well, and I too think that people's sensitivity to those kind of issues and and people not being as ashamed of it anymore mm-hmm. makes it overdiagnosed. Yeah, I think, could, yeah. you know, people who are normally sad are now encouraged to embrace depression. Yeah. And people who are reasonably anxious now have anxiety disorders and, and panic attacks when, you know, most of the, the gambit of human emotion is pretty normal, pretty natural. You know, the the software package for those kind of things was installed at the factory. And if you don't know how to interpret your emotions or how to deal with them with self-regulation, then it's very easy to abdicate and go, well, I'm broken or there's something wrong with me. Oh, yes, especially if a, quote, professional, you know, in that field is diagnosing you and telling you what's wrong with you when that's... Can not necessarily be the case. You know. Now you know he is a professional in this. Well, that's uh, and he would well know, and he would he knows exactly what I'm talking about. There's a lot of doctors out there who, unfortunately, are kind of pushing their own, you know, agenda, as it were, 
to try right. to make a name for themselves or or they think they're helping people but they because they're a professional they can pronounce you know something over it and and then get these well, people I, on I pills can re- i can read i can read music but i can't sing and so you have people in psychiatry and psychology uh, you even run into lawyers you even run into police officers who understand the rules and the law, but they don't know how to do a practical application of it. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing about mental health diagnosis, it is symptom cluster diagnosis. You know, I can't give you a blood test and tell what your serotonin levels are. Right. I can't, right. you know, give you a, a blood test and go, oh, look, your blood levels show this, this, and this, you're depressed. It's symptom cluster diagnosis. So if you have, say, a reasonably inexperienced therapist with a, you know, higher education degree, but they've never worked in the public, they've never had any other job than in academia. Mm-hmm. And then they look at the checklist and go, one, two, three, four, this is what you are. Yeah. And, and, you know, any test that you give that is given without observation is suspect. Mm. You know, so if you're given, mm-hmm. you know, an MMPI or a Milan and you don't have the ability to also sit down there and talk with this person, sometimes those results aren't as accurate as the, the documentation on those things would tell you they are. Ah, I see. So, you know, okay. if you, you answer all the questions on an MMPI, you know, there's a, a cluster of those that say, hey, when you walk into a room, are you often in charge? Hey, when you walk into a room, are you often the center of attention? Well, as a, a full-time youth and family minister, you go, yes, yes, and yes. Congratulations, you're histrionic. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. No, I'm not histrionic. Wrong. I'm a minister. I have to go yeah. in the room and, and, and take charge. So yeah. you know, unless you've got some caveats behind why you answered what you answered, then you get, oh, your do your mood swings often? Oh, well, yeah, I'm a 14-year-old yeah. girl. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're bipolar. No, you're 14. Yeah. And you're a female. Yeah. No offense to the gotcha. sitting audience. I gotcha. I understand. That's, oh, my goodness. That, that has definitely opened up a whole new facet for me to think about in that way. Now, is that one of the reasons that we're seeing so many kids in schools on medications? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You have parents who don't recognize, hey, you know, my, my kid is basically normal. They're weird as crap, but they're normal. You know, what's the definition for, you know, what's the difference between mental illness and adolescence? Well, nobody really knows. Because mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> in adolescence, so we're the all The adolescent crazy. brain mm-hmm. is, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, if you if you could study the adolescent brain, which is difficult to do because they don't give them up easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But if you could compare their brain to the brain of a person with a personality disorder, they look the same. Wow. Because adults who have personality disorders still probably function with some of the attributes of an adolescent brain. The disinhibition, the emotional dysregulation, lack of executive functioning. And so many times now, parents are unprepared to deal with their own level of emotions. They don't know how to deal with their kids' emotions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now we've got social media that, yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, you've got this standard that is a false standard. This is what success looks like. This Mm -hmm. is what happiness looks like. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? I don't I don't post pictures of empty deer fields when the deer aren't moving. Mm -hmm. I only post pictures of of deer fields when deer are in them. So everybody thinks every time you go hunting, you see a deer. Well, I'm (laughs) not seeing a deer every time I go hunting. I'm a failure as a deer hunter. (laughs) And so, you know, if you didn't have the bouncy house and the water slide at your kid's birthday party, you're a terrible parent. Mm -hmm, You're subpar. And so we have these standards. (laughs) We have these standards of comparison that are basically unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Social media has 
done a lot to paint a a false picture of what life perfect life is supposed to be and 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 folks are having a hard time the, m- m- like new mothers for example that's a group right. that's been really heavily targeted you've got all these quote perfect mommies with perfect houses and perfect children and perfect everything and you get this blasted in the face of a new mother who's maybe a single mother and she doesn't have a lot of money and maybe she doesn't have a lot of education, but she's the greatest mother those kids ever had. But right. she may be, and, and, she's comparing herself now to these false, polished images that are not real. They're just not real. And on the other end of that, you have these people who, who are what I call the martyr moms. And motherhood is hard, and motherhood is tragic, and look what a suffering servant I am mm-hmm. because I, I, you know, I do all these things for my kids. Well, guess what? That's what you signed up for when you had yeah, kids. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what having kids is. That's where the the pro choice crowd actually uses that as ammunition. Yeah. Of I, if I don't want a kid, I don't want to live my life resenting this kid, and my mom resented me, and I'm like, well, I'm sorry that happened. I mean, that's. That's her loss. Yeah, but there's you know there's a way to pre- there's a way to prevent that you know from a you know person who who lives with a moral compass, right? And right. you know well, and so you know it's it's not like anybody held a gun to your head and made you pregnant. Mm-hmm. You, you were doing something where you got pregnant that, that you probably weren't opposed to at the time. It's amazing and, to and me so, how many people don't recognize that that activity can result in parenthood. They actually have dis- disassociated the two. It's not washing right. our socks together. Yeah, no, no, no. Huh. <laughs> but seriously, I think some people are very uneducated about things like that. Yeah, and or they're just in denial, or they yeah. think if I, you know, I don't think about it, the consequences won't happen. And, and that gets into you know when when I teach the class to the police that you know emotional intelligence, mm. you understand, you have insight to your own emotions, and. Based on my understanding of my own emotions, number one, my emotions are not instruction. They're information. They don't tell me to do anything. They just tell me something. Yeah. And then I take that information and I do self-regulation. This is from uh, Daniel Goldman's book on emotional intelligence. Delayed gratification, impulse control, and motivation. If you can do those things, you're probably not mentally ill. Now, if you can't do those things, if you don't have a capacity for that, that's a mental illness. Mm. If you do have a capacity for it and you're not using it, you're either immature or maladaptive. Hmm. And yeah. immature people go, hey, this is what I want and I want it now. Or this yeah. is what I don't want and I don't want it now. And so they make impulse and delayed gratification con- uh decisions and then you know then they wonder why my life is like it is well and they also get very good at blaming everybody else but themselves for the choices that yes. they have made you right. made and, me and, you do know, this you made me do this you know and then <laughs> so let, I, let me I, let me switch here just a second now in normal life just in everyday life we all Uh, deal with multiple little issues throughout the day and nothing really big but it all piles up and in the context of what all we're hearing about recession and shortages and supply chain issues and gas prices and inflation how do we deal with those pile-ups the normal pile-ups of life that tend to pull us down 
So I did a little discussion about some of these issues in a book called Grappling with Life, Controlling Your Inside Space. I wrote it uh, for kind of the the jujitsu crowd that I hang out with. Mm-hmm. And, and so one of the things in there is, you know, I'm not going to be responsible for things I can't control. So I start looking at, okay, here's here's my daily dose of whatever I've got to deal with today. What can I do about gas prices? Nothing. Yeah. What can I do about inflation? Mm. And, and so, you know, I, if, if I worry about it every day, what am I doing to my stress bucket? Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, what am I doing to, 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 to what? I, and I think the thing that gets most of us when we have breakdowns is not, not acute stress. Now, occasionally you get an acute stress and have a conversion reaction or something like that. But in most cases, you know, what, what our enemy is, is chronic stress. Right. And so, you know, I illustrate that as, you know, pick up a, a 12-ounce water bottle. And it's not very heavy. We'll hold it out at arm's length for five minutes. Oh, no. <laughs> now, yeah, you can't after do it. three minutes, your world becomes your rotator cuff in that water bottle. <laughs> right. What happens if I put anything else on the end of that lever? Oh, man. It's going to fall. Catastrophic system failure. Mm-hmm. So here I am running around worried about what the political party is going to do. Here I am worried about what inflation is going to do here. I'm worried about what gas prices are going to do. And then my kid has a failing grade or I have a blowout on my car or I have to replace the HVAC system or the water main breaks. Then you've got all this stress piled up. And and a lot of it is, is I'm worrying about things that I can't do anything about anyway. And then you have this catastrophic overload and that causes these intense reactions from people. Mm -hmm. So how do we deal with that? So, you know, all right, so gas is this, is this expensive? How many of my trips that I'm going to take in my truck this week are urgent and important? Okay, priorities. Yeah. Okay, and so are you are you familiar with the Eisenhower box? Mm-mm, I'm not. No. Okay, so he did it as a grid. I saw it in a Stephen Covey thing, and it was laid out like a plus sign. So at 12 o'clock on the plus sign is important. At 6 o'clock on the plus sign is not important. Okay, at this, nine is the o'clock on the, this is the quadrants. This is the quadrants. Quadrant one, yeah. yes. Very familiar with that. I, I and so at 9 o'clock on the plus sign is urgent. Mm-hmm. At 3 o'clock is not urgent. And so, you know, when you look at what's urgent and important, what's important but not urgent, mm-hmm. what's urgent but not important, and then what is not urgent and not important. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start trying to figure out how do I put my time, my money, my energy, and my resources, which box do I put them in? My spin on that is things that are urgent and important have immediate consequences. Mm-hmm. Things that are important but not urgent, nobody's checking on it today, they have delayed consequences. That's how much canned food do you have? How much fuel do you have? Do you have a generator? You know, do you have a life straw? You know, that kind of yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you have things that are urgent but not important. Those have perceived consequences. So I've got to drive to the movies. i got to go to Walmart just to get soda pop. Uh, I need to go to Maverick the night it opens. And then you have things that are not urgent and not important, and they have no consequences. Mm-hmm. So, all right, I'm going to drive my truck with the price of gas like it is, and we're just going to go out and grab a pizza. Well, gas is $5 a gallon. Maybe you should save that trip and eat at home. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe you should mm-hmm. make homemade pizza or not eat pizza at all. But we're, you know, once you decide that, you know, here's a situation that the gas prices or inflation is doing this, I've got to make prioritized choices about how I use these resources that I control, even though some of those resources are affected by things I don't control. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's really more of a an initiative in, in a sense, a, yes. sort of a take charge even for the things you cannot control, you can adjust your way of approaching and responding to those things. Yeah, and Covey right. said that we need to try to live in quadrant two, those things yes. that are important but not urgent. And th- there's a big difference between urgency and importance. Mm-hmm. And Yes. You know, it, it took Krista a little while to understand that, she is much more important to me than anything else that I do, but work is more urgent at times. You know, right. I'm a newer police wife, so yeah. I had to learn the difference between urgency and importance. And uh, he, he, he was able to illustrate that several times very clearly. And the distinction between some of that is, you know, I say that we don't live or die or lose our souls because we don't know what's urgent and important and mm-hmm. not urgent and not important. We flip-flop the priorities between the second quadrant and the third quadrant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when the third quadrant takes precedence over the second quadrant, then we're making emotion-based decisions. That third quadrant, by the way, is delayed gratification and impulse control. The wheels are in the ditch because I'm not doing those things. And when I can delay gratification and when I can control my impulses, I live in the second quadrant. Yes. And so that that emotional intelligence and, and those priorities are all hinged closely together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That is good stuff. <laughs> that, you are really just, my mind is firing. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> I mean, my brain cells are are happening on this stuff. This is very good information. I know Mark and I were talking recently about the concerns we have for uh, in America today when we look at some of these uh, young people that become unhinged and they, you know, take a weapon into a school and they wreak havoc and create mayhem. And I was reading where a mother was asking her own high school son recently what what he was thinking about this type of thing happening and he shared with her he said mother it's not about the guns and she was shocked because she was coming at it from that viewpoint of if it weren't for these weapons these kinds of things wouldn't be happening but he said mom it's not about the the weapon it's about these kids that are not getting validation or the right kind of attention and they they're looking for attention and they'll get it any way they can get it at this point some of them are so far down the road of either neglect or or mind poisoning or whatever it is you know that has motivated them to take this action and he said it's about their need to be seen to be heard and he said that's the only way they know how to do it and it's the, so the trauma or neglect, or abuse, you know, all those things fit under one big umbrella. And when a person experiences trauma, what happens to, to, you, to you is you create what we call implicit meanings. And an implicit belief is something that you feel is true, but you couldn't prove it with facts. Yeah, it's true for you. But those, yeah, things, yeah. But those things happen at such a, a basal level that we never check their veracity. Mm. 
Uh-huh. Okay. So as a child, I'm egocentric. Everything's about me. Mm-hmm. I walk into a room and I hear my own theme music. Well, there's a three-year-old <laughs> okay. upstairs that he's in bed right now, but he illustrates that when he walks in the room, the world revolves around him. Well, that's the way he wants right. it. Yeah. So, so <laughs> the world revolves around you and the world is good. What if the world's bad? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it still revolves around you. Then it's my fault that you abused me. It's my fault you neglected me. It's my fault you abandoned me. Right, because that's the only way so they can see st- it. Yeah. So I start living life with this implicit belief that I am fundamentally broken. Hmm. Well, if I'm fundamentally broken, I don't trust people. And I don't make connections. And if I don't make connections, I'm not vulnerable. If I'm not vulnerable, I don't make connections. You know, as a concealed carry guy, you walk into a room and because you're hiding a weapon, you look and see who else is hiding a weapon, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, every time. Mm -hmm. So if I walk into a room wearing a mask, I assume everybody else is wearing a mask. Mm. And if you knew me, you really wouldn't like me. So shame is the fear of loss of connection, according to Brene Brown. So we hide these secrets. We don't tell people we're afraid. We don't tell people we're scared. We don't tell people we're abused. And so we wear these masks, and then we wonder why people don't relate to us on an authentic level. And then we get further disconnected from people, and that further disconnect then means people aren't important. I don't love people, and people don't love me. And you know what? I'll just go shoot them all and tell them, show them how important I am. Show them how powerful I am. Yeah. If you, as people say, that if you don't value your, yeah, you don't value your own life, you're certainly not going to value others' lives. And, and so, you know, the the idea that my sense of self does not come from anything external, my circumstances or how you treat me. But your sense of self-efficacy, you know, in Stephen Glenn's book, Raising Self-Reliant Children in a Self-Indulgent World, he says you have to have three perceptions. I'm capable, I'm significant, and I can influence what happens to me. Mm. And so people who don't feel, you know, I'm capable, confidence, self-esteem is built on confidence, and confidence is built on competence. And so kids who don't know how to do laundry, kids who don't know how to mow the grass, kids who don't know how to make their bed, kids who can't fry their own Legos, they grow up feeling like, well, I didn't get breakfast. It's somebody's fault. Mm. I didn't I didn't do good at sports. It's the coach's fault. Well, no, you you got to get out there and, and shoot free throws in your driveway or throw paper balls at the trash can or whatever. But teach yourself that there's some things you can do. So I'm capable. And then secondly, I'm significant. Uh, I believe I'm created. In the image of a God, mm-hmm. and that gives me significance. And I believe that, you know, there was a sacrifice made on my behalf that gives me significance. And so I've got some some inherent value. I've got some inherent worth. And it doesn't come on how you treat me. It doesn't come on how you respond to me. It doesn't come based on whether I'm famous. There's inherent worth because I've got this stamp, the image of a maker in me. And, mm-hmm. and then my choices affect my outcomes. You know, I hate that this, my wife doesn't like it when I say this, but, you know, if you don't want to see the genie, don't rub the bottle. There's some things, there's some things that you do that things come with it. Yeah. And in in modern parenting, it seems to me like the, the modern parenting is either too harsh or too soft. Yeah. When I set limits or consequences on behavior, if those limits or consequences are punitive or vindictive, that's manipulation and control. But if I, I if I set limits on behavior that are values-based, 
We don't tell lies in our house. And if I catch you in a lie, then the things that connect to truth go away because I can't trust you. Mm -hmm. I'm pissed off at you because you told me a lie, so I'm going to take your phone and smash it. Mm. That just teaches kids that bullies rule the world. Mm -hmm. And they either become victims all their lives or bullies all their lives, or it's just life's about values and our consequences are when our behaviors violate our values. There's a price to pay for that. Touch on, uh, you know, we saw those lockdowns of 2020. And basically, kids missed quite a bit of school with those lockdowns. And when they came back to school, a lot of times it was on two days a week. And one of the things that teacher friends, what I heard teacher friends say, was that those kids had almost lost a full year of social growth, social interaction, and they were... Some of them even seem to go backwards a little bit in, in their social abilities and the things that they would have gotten at school. How can we as parents and grandparents reinforce and make up for some of that? First of all, I, th- I think the pr- I think your, your teacher friend was partially correct. I don't, I don't invalidate that at all. But if you bring the children back into this environment – and grades don't matter, and homework doesn't have a deadline, and we're marking time just so we can tell the Board of Education we attended this much school, they come into an environment and the parameters are false. Hmm. There's no purpose for us being together. Well, if there's no purpose for us being together, then there's no purpose for socialization and interaction and connection. It was almost a contrived narrative. But you put kids that miss that many months and you put them back on the ball field, they knew how to socialize. You put them back at sports camp, they knew how to socialize. You send them to summer camp at church or you send them to band camp, they knew how to socialize. But when they got into education, nothing mattered. Everybody was going to pass. So I don't have to be social. I can be feral. Mm. I can be selfish. And so I think that that part of it is they did lose some time, but kids were connected to each other. Nobody cut the internet off. Yeah, they you know, you know, kids were texting and tweeting and Instagramming and FaceTiming and Snapchatting all during the pandemic. They probably talked to more people than, than the, the <laughs> yeah, they were, they were actually did. more connected. <laughs> but when they got back together in the context of school and school was not real. Yeah. You know, everybody got a wife, pass. Everybody got a free yeah, pass. Yeah, every, everybody passed. You, you didn't have to turn it in. If you didn't want to be in person, you could not be. If you came and wanted to wear a mask, then you could make people stay away from you. And you, you had this, the emperor's wearing new clothes thing that was going on. And, and, and I think the kids, kids do not tolerate uh, disingenuousness. Yeah. Uh, you know, I do this hand motion where I hold one palm facing out. And then I hold the back of my hand and I make this come here, go away signal at the mm-hmm. same time. Kids, that drives him crazy. you got to go to school. Why? Well, you got to. Okay, I'm here. What do I do? Nothing. <laughs> yeah, but you got to go. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. Right. Well, guess what I'm going to do in a situation like that? You know, you, you've mm-hmm. had to do the mandatory. You've had to do the mandatory training at work. Mm-hmm. Computer security. Watch this video and click the button. And what do you do? You misbehave. You make jokes. You put the computer on silent and let it run. Come back in, see if you can fake your way through the test. (laughs) That's what the kids were doing because the whole system was based on a false premise. 
Mm-hmm. Now, you know, was COVID dangerous? Well, ask the people who died. Yeah. But ask the people in my age group who had a 97% recovery rate. Mm-hmm. So what's the truth? You know, I tell people that a, a, a herpetologist, a professional snake guy, doesn't think snakes are a big deal at all. Ask my wife who believes that there's only two kinds of snakes in the world, a rattlesnake and a cobra. If it doesn't have rattles, it's a cobra. <laughs> well, what's the truth between those two positions? Yeah. It's not either or, it's both and. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, was, was COVID dangerous? Yeah, to certain populations, certain groups. Mm-hmm. Was it no big deal? Yeah, to certain populations and certain groups. You know, as a police officer, uh, you were in the public and around the public. All the time during during the lockdown. Yeah, and Krista and I did eventually get it, but it was the uh, Omicron. And the way we really knew we had it, I mean, we had some sniffles and a little bit of coughing, but we tested, and thankfully we had it at the same time, so we just stayed home for a week. But yeah. we really had no issues at all with it. But you're right, we, we were... We tried to do as much by telephone as we could, but there are certain calls you just have to go. And so we know we were going into houses where COVID was. And and as a therapist, I told people, look, I'm open for business. I'm seeing people in person because I think it's healthy for you to get out. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to wear a mask in my office and you want to sit against the wall, that's your call. I'm, you know, if I cared less about it, I'd be dead And, and and I let you do it, but I wasn't. Uh, most of my people were struggling with the isolation factor. And if I said, "Oh no, don't come see me, stay isolated," mm-hmm. I didn't think it was in their best interest. Now that now leads said, you- to that leads to another point that I wanted to ask you about the isolation. Now we do the practical prepping thing. We're not looking at the post-apocalyptic type stuff, but you know, it's not impossible that we could have some type of end of the world situation, uh, end of the world as we know it, and, you know, an EMP or something that puts us back into the 1800s or a worldwide pandemic that just absolutely isolates people. Now, you were talking about not isolating your patients. How could we as Uh, those that do prep for end-of-the-world type situations, how can they deal with the isolation, the the maybe totally by themselves or a husband and wife and nobody else there to help? I I guess I'm going to answer that in a wrong way first and then then go again. You know, I think the first thing is you walk up and down your street and you get to know who your neighbors are. Mm Mm-hmm. Before it happens. And you, mm-hmm. and, and you realize that, you know, hey, here's some people I can trust and rely on. Here's some people that aren't selfish. And by the way, that's how you measure trust. Mm-hmm. If a person is selfish, you don't trust them. If a person is selfish, you don't trust them. If the person is selfless, you do. And, and so, you know, you, when you know your neighbors well enough to know, hey, here's a guy that I could count on. Here's a guy that, that would not abuse my resources if I shared them. I think the first thing is that we, we probably don't have to be isolated. You know, in the 1800s, when people lived out in, in the wilderness by themselves, they got along with the Indians. They got along with the Native Americans mm-hmm. or they lived in small clusters. You know, the mountain men were isolated, but they went to the rendezvous. Right. 
they knew the local, you know, Lakota Sioux tribe when they were up there in Montana doing their thing. And so I think one of the things is to, to prepare for isolation is we actually don't live isolated. And, and we've got way more floor space than we do friends anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember growing up, you know, uh, the neighbors would whip you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> your kid was doing. Oh, absolutely. Your, neighbors, your kid was doing this, and he was in my yard, and I snatched you. And now, you know, if you looked bad at a kid's, his mom would come apart. You know, mm-hmm. and so I think first is, do I live in a community where I fit in? Do I live in a community where I'm surrounded by like-minded people, or did I move there for the zip code or the gate? <laughs> and 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 you know, we we intentionally live out in the county, so our children, if we ever had children, would go to Madison County High School because I wanted my daughter to go to school with boys that drove pickup trucks and sat in Walmart's parking lot in cowboy boots. Mm-hmm. Well, that either Rather needs than, to be Madison County High School <laughs> or Hazel Green. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one or the other. Yeah, you know, and, and so we, and so guess what happened when we moved out here? Well, we moved near property that had cotton fields and sod farms. And if you went out in your backyard and you shot a rifle, the neighbor would come over and say, hey, what you shooting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me look at it. And we had a neighbor that lived in our neighborhood that would come out and say, hey, stop that shooting. My kids go to bed at 830. And I was like, well, the county doesn't have a noise ordinance. They do now, I think. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know, you can move into Hampton Cove and everybody go to bed at 830. (laughs) (laughs) But he was living in a a neighborhood where he was not compatible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was talking about social unrest and kind of some some prepping stuff and i looked him in the eye and i said you know larry if things go to pot you're gonna to have to go you're a liability here <laughs> Shooting straight. You know, i'll be making jerky i'll be making jerky out of you in the basement son <laughs> oh my word and and so it was just one of those things and so first is let, let's see if we cannot isolate mm-hmm. i think it's healthy to insulate mm-hmm. but when insulation becomes isolation then you start getting the paranoia sets in and whatever mm. But if you ended up off the grid totally and, and, you know, isolated for real because, you know, the the bridge at the Flint River broke down and traffic couldn't get across, then, you know, that really goes back to how healthy is your relationship with your spouse in the first place? Mm -hmm. Have you put in the time to be friends all your life? You know, are you doing those things that, you know, build intimacy? You, You know, do you speak each other's love languages? Uh, have you looked at the seven emotional command systems of primates that Yak Panskeep talked about from University of Kentucky? And, you know, a lot of it is just knowing who I'm married to and being able to spend by yourself time. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, I'd rather spend time with my wife than anybody else. We, uh, The two of us are the same way. We can stay at home a week and not deal with any other person and be just as happy. And there's nobody I'd rather travel with, nobody I'd rather spend my afternoon with. Same. And, <laughs> and and so if you're already having trouble doing that when the world is relatively spinning in control, uh-huh. if you that's already a difficulty, you need to go ahead and, and realize you know, that's a difficulty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know, yeah. If, if I can't walk from here to the mailbox without being out of breath, and it may be that in order to go find supplies, I've got to walk great distances, I probably need to get in shape before the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And so you need to get your marriage in shape before that. Lots of resources out there that, you know, there's books written on it. Uh, I, I talk a lot about marriage stuff sometimes and principles in my podcast. And uh, I do seminars. Um, anything John Gottman ever wrote on relationships is good to read and know. Uh, and just, you know, so then you've got, okay, I'm by myself and the world fell apart. 
and I'm isolated. Well, how much introspection do you do? How much meditation do you do? Do you have a healthy absorption hobby? Do you draw? Do you whittle? Do you carve? Do you write? Do you, something that you can do so your mind shuts off and you have a, the ability to recharge your brain. Mm. And if you don't have a, a you know, uh, I hate to use the term mindfulness because it's connected to Zen, but it is a good term. You know, people used to ask me, Lonnie, do you, you know, do you rock climb because of the adrenaline? No, I don't like to be scared. Mm-hmm. I don't like to fall. But when you're rock climbing, the only thing you can think about is rock climbing. Rock climbing, yeah. Because if you're not thinking about, if you're, if you're not focused on that three feet of rock that you can control at that moment, you're not, you're not climbing. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have something that you can do what I call healthy mindfulness mm-hmm. and, and just, chasing a rabbit you know when a little girl or a little boy starts to cut their forearm or cut their upper arm or cut their thighs because of psychic pain they're reaching mindfulness in an unhealthy way so i you know when i am exposed to this cutting behavior i call it pathological mindfulness they're reaching a a state that they want to be in but they're getting there by an unhealthy path and so you got to have a way to have healthy mindfulness that is not, you know, drinking yourself into oblivion or taking a bunch of pills, but it's meditation, it's a hobby, it's creation, it's painting, it's drawing, it's whatever. And that's one of the things I've always enjoyed about deer hunting. You you get into the woods and um, if you'll just focus on God's creation, it kind of pushes all the other things out of your mind. If you're looking with the expectation of, I'm going to see a deer in just a second. I've just got to find his ear. And you're just focused <laughs> on that and you're totally absorbed in that. Yeah, yeah I think that's, uh, you know, and, and two, men have the ability to occupy an empty space in their brain. And then wives <laughs> don't understand that you can, you know, ask your husband, hey, what are you thinking? And the guy goes, nothing. And he really means it because we can turn our minds off and think nothing. And a woman's brain doesn't turn off that way. She's got to be occupied, got to be rolling it. Uh, and, and so my wife doesn't believe that there are times when my brain is just white noise. Mm-hmm. And that's my favorite spot in my brain is it's the white. So I sit in a tree stand and go, uh, and, yeah. and, you know, wait on a suicidal deer to walk by me. <laughs> And then I'll decide whether or not to pull the trigger when he does. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if you pull yeah, the okay, trigger, I it's want all, to drag it out. It's all the downhill from there. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, Lonnie, one other question here that I've actually heard preppers discussing before. What does the world look like if all of these folks on medication suddenly can't get them? Either China decides to shut us off or... You know, supply chain issue, uh, end of the world, apocalyptic type situation. Now all these folks cannot get their medication. What's that world look like? So mental illness works on a continuum. Like in the old days, they used to talk about force continuum. Mm -hmm. So you got people who are mentally ill and they're not very dysfunctional. And then you got folks who can't function. Mm-hmm. because of the severity or the complication of their mental illness. On the deepest end of the spectrum without medication, those folks will decompensate and either self-destruct or go into a pattern of behavior where somebody else causes their destruction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get a paranoid schizophrenic, 
and he decides that he's going to break into the neighbor's house because they're the people who's causing his problems, then a person prepared for a break-in is, is going to unfortunately have to, to, to do armed mm-hmm. conflict with a, a mentally ill person. Now, that person is not responsible for their actions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if my dog gets gets rabies, she can't help it, but there's only one way to deal with her. Mm-hmm. Okay. In some cases, people are going to realize that, hey, this medication was based in some things that were herbal, and I might be able to do some 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 herbal substitutes for that. Um, a dietary change. Um, so, you know, some real interesting studies have been done on exercise and depression. Mm-hmm. At 20 minutes a day, three times a week is probably the most effective thing for indigenous depression as anything I can give you over the counter. And then a lot of times... Again, psychopharmacology is is they're treating symptom cluster diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Your anesthesiologist can say, I'm going to give you this many cc's of this based on your weight or your height, and it will put this part of your body to sleep. Your brain will cease to function. Your limbs will go down. When you take a psychopharm medicine, nobody knows really what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Hey, you've got these symptom cluster diagnosis. And we use antidepressants to treat antipsychotics, and we use antipsychotics as antidepressants. You listen to anybody who makes a, a, a presentation on that, and it's, hey, we we got some idea that these things have efficacy, so let's spin the wheel and see what we'll give you. Mm-hmm. How many people do you know that have said, hey, come back in, we'll adjust your meds? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're using true chemistry, in the way I understand chemistry, chemistry has rules just like math. Mm-hmm. You know, two plus two equals four, and it's going to equal four all the time. That's not true when you start in when you start giving chemicals to a human brain. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife takes Zyrtec, and she'll clean the house, paint the fence, and plow the yard. <laughs> I can spell Benadryl and go to sleep. And, and so there's there, there's there's you know, and so now you've got a, an already misfiring brain, and we're going to essentially throw experimental chemicals at it. Mm. And, and we don't know why it works. We just have some. So in some cases, I think folks would would severely decompensate and either self-destruct or cause themselves to be destroyed. Or folks will go, you know, I can probably cope without this. Hmm. And, you know, every time I have a blow up at my neighbor because I'm not on my meds and they won't share their resources with me, I end up spending the night hungry. <laughs> And you, you know, I tell folks, you know, if you've got a true mental illness, and I'm not trying to say that that it's not severe and that it doesn't happen. I don't want anybody to think I'm being cavalier about this, okay? Mm-hmm. But in some cases, you go, okay, so you got a true mental illness. You didn't cause it. You can't cure it. So how do you cope with it? Because you're always going to be, you know, bipolar. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you know you're bipolar and you recognize the symptoms of mania maybe you should have a rescue package just like you have a generator, just like you have fresh water, just like you have canned food. Hey, there's three people I've got to call when I know I'm getting manic. So that don't end up. And, I, and now some people's mania is so severe, they don't have the ability for self-regulation. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, that's not the severe end. This is the middle end of things. And then I think you'll find that people from the moderate to the mild, I think they learn to function well without their medication. Okay. And, uh, you know, in the end of the world, apocalyptic kind of stuff, I think some of these things end up being a, 
they'll sort themselves out. That's not a very Christian view of it. <laughs> and it's not a very, uh, doesn't sound like a very compassionate view. But, but I think what will happen is you'll find that, that the severely people who, who can't function without medication, if they don't have medication, they won't function. Mm-hmm. And it'll almost be a self resolution thing. Right. And I hate to say it that way, but that's what it looks like. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. we've already anticipated yeah. that, you know, as an answer, because that's, that's certainly truthful to the way it is. I mean, it's just, that's what, as my daughter would say, that's real talk. Yeah, real talk, <laughs> yeah. real talk. Uh, there's my, uh, my minister friend, Tim Orbison, and I, we always, you know, you have these jokes that you've told forever, so you just use the punchline. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a joke about these two guys working on a roof, and the guy looks at his supervisor and says, hey, you know, this uh, building we're working on doesn't have any guys or stays. And the boss says, yeah, I know that. He goes, well, what are we going to do if it falls? The guy looks at him and says, ride it to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and so we'll we'll get into a bad situation. He'll look at me and go, looks ride like we're going to ride it to the ground. <laughs> I, I like that. I really like that. Now, you mentioned a podcast. Do you do yes, a sir. podcast? Yes, I launch a podcast every Tuesday morning at 6. Would you like uh, to share called, that with folks? I would love to do that. It's called Keeping Up With Jones. The Lonnie Jones Podcast Adventures. Not keeping up with the Joneses. It's just mm-hmm. me. I'm the Jones. No, just so keeping Jones. up with Jones. <laughs> the Lonnie Jones Podcast Adventure. And basically, I tell stories. Oh, that's neat. And from the things that you talk about, whether it's being a dad, being a police chaplain, or being an outdoorsman, we take facts. Facts lead to concepts, and concepts lead to applications. And we do some anecdotal wisdom and some applications about it. Uh, some of it is somewhat religious, but for the most part, it's just pretty practical, healthy stuff. Okay. Sounds well, great. we will link that in the show notes, and I will go ahead and link you off of the website. And That would um, be awesome. We, mm-hmm. we will be more than happy to do that. And we will be traveling uh, back home, actually, for listeners, we're home by the time you hear this, but we'll be listening to you on the way home as well. And so we look forward to that. I'd like, to have, Lonnie back. I'd like to have Lonnie back on. Well, you guys be careful. Yeah, well, I, she said that she'd love to have you back on, and I would certainly agree well, with that. This has been a lot of fun. And um, how would you like to be introduced? Now, this this is a section that I will take and do the introduction of you, but... How would you like to, okay. what, what, what do we need to tell folks? I guess just, you know, Lonnie Jones, licensed professional counselor, consultant, and uh, police chaplain. And podcaster. And I've been a, <laughs> and I've been a, uh, a, a uh, volunteer police chaplain with the city of Huntsville for the last 30 years. God bless and you. been specifically assigned to their SWAT team. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I immersed myself in learning about trauma and disaster mm-hmm. so that when something happened with those guys, I wouldn't be, hey, this is above my pay grade. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's wow. been a cool thing. God bless you. That's awesome. That's yep. awesome. Lonnie, you've done a real treat to listen to. You have opened my mind to so many new concepts and thoughts and i appreciate that because i love learning well, chris it's nice to meet you um, i have really enjoyed having mark in that little class that we teach yeah. uh, as part of the cit program with the police mm-hmm. and uh, i'm glad you guys invited me to be on the podcast it's been a blast and hey you're welcome back and we'll be glad to have you back at any time and anything we can do to help 
You got our numbers. Thank you very much. You guys have a blessed day and happy fourth. A holiday brought to you by people with guns. <laughs> Thank you, Amen. Lonnie. All right. <laughs> Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Preparedness is personal and it is practical. You decide what and how you want to prepare. You can prepare for three days, three months, three years. You can prepare for power outages, ice or snowstorms, wildfires, or even an attack of alien zombie frogs. It's completely up to you. But practical prepping for everyday people will help you on your journey. It's a guide to help you as you begin your preparedness journey or for those of you that have been involved for a while and want to take it to the next level. This book, Practical Prepping for Everyday People, is available on Amazon, it's available on our website, or you can order it wherever books are sold. Practical Prepping for Everyday People. Get one for yourself or give several as gifts. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast today. Hopefully you've learned something, picked up a tip, or something we said may have triggered a thought that will help you in your prepping journey. If you haven't already, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode and share it with your friends and family. And remember, stuff happens. Stay prepared.